there's a thing a lot of people don't know about the early church, and that's that the church was um, something akin to scriptural literalists. And um, they did not like religious language that was not explicitly uh, resembling scripture. So they didn't sing songs in their worship that were just like what we think of as hymns. They would chant the psalms. They would sing the scriptures. And they were very wary of music and language that was not explicitly rooted in scripture. And similarly, when you read um, sermons or homilies of ancient believers, you'll see that there's just scripture woven throughout very explicitly. Even though they didn't have chapters and verses back then, they just had, uh, you know, letters. (laughs) So it's weird to be at a place in history now where the vast majority of people going to worship are listening to sermons that just barely uh, have scriptural quotations in them. They would say, of course, that they are governed by scriptural principles. But what's been created by this is entire generations of people who are unfamiliar with the Christian scriptures, who think that they can receive a message, a Christian message with Christian principles without it being rooted in the scriptures, without scripture regularly being read and consulted. And if I hold myself up against the standard of the early church, I fall very short. Early early disciples would be very uncomfortable with my method of proclaiming the word. But, um, <clears throat> well, I'm just trying to get back to something closer to that. Um, I, I think it's really to our detriment that pastors spend so little time directing their people towards scriptures. In our worship, we're having four scripture readings a day that are woven together as best as I'm able. And what I hope comes through in that is the absolute necessity of scripture and dis- uh, discerning God's will. Um, I-, I hope that as you listen to me, you come away with the impression that you will not have access to God unless you conform to his scriptures, unless you read them, know what's in them. Um And I hope you get the sense that it's all connected. We live in an age that likes to turn Scripture against itself, and that's that's just fundamentally not what it is. Um, It is one coherent um, masterpiece that leads to Jesus. So um, with that in mind, I would just ask you to to listen with faithful ears as I preach my little stupid heart out to you with the readings that we encountered this Sunday. Thank you. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Good morning. Our Old Testament reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, which you can find on page 450 in your pew Bibles. Listen for the word of God. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? 
If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an ephor with thee, and I say, and say, I am coming to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will see thee what thou shalt do, and thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. <clears throat> and it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel, and Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, And here all the children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready, and with all of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So during Lent, of course, we follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and sometimes there are themes throughout, uh, and then sometimes it, it just seems kind of random. Right now, what it has us doing through the Old Testament is just going through and getting some of the greatest hits, okay? So we had Abraham two weeks ago, we had Moses and the Israelites and the, the wilderness last week, and now we're following David and Samuel. We've skipped forward a hundred, couple hundred years. Now, uh, part of this is just history. It's good to know history, and then some of it has to do with us. Uh, but just so we know what, what the story is here, maybe for some of us it's been a while since we read some of this history. God brought the Israelites eventually into the promised land, and he uh, gave the land to them, and they divided it up among the 12 tribes, and then the Levites were interspersed. They were priests, and then Samuel was one of these priests that, that followed. Um, he, he served under uh, Eli, and then uh, he, he became kind of a mobile priest. He was the one who eventually, um, it, it transitioned into 12 separate tribes. It transitioned from that into a unified kingdom under one king. The first one was Saul, but the thing is, Saul screwed up. He made some bad decisions. He did what was right in his own eyes, 
And eventually God turned his back on Saul. And so this meeting, this reading began with Samuel, the prophet, uh, priest, that was, has been running the country. He is mourning that Saul has, has neglected his divinely inspired duty. And uh, God says, hey, quit being so down in the dumps. I've already chosen a new king, and I want you to go and anoint him for me. And anointing is the practice of pouring oil on someone's head to demarcate that God has an, uh, ordained that they should do something special. So uh, there's a Hebrew word that means anointed one. Does anybody remember what that Hebrew word is? Susie, I know you do, but you were in last worship service. I just want to see if anybody else pays attention to my sermons. Does anybody remember that Hebrew word? Because we say it all the time in worship. So there it is, Messiah. Mashiach is how, that, well, that's, it, that's closer to how they said it. I'm not a Hebrew speaker. Mashiach is one who is anointed. Anybody remember the Greek word for anointed one? There it is, Joseph. Christ. Christos. That's where we get, Christ was not his last name. It's a title, which means anointed one. Anointed one, Christ, Messiah. These three, together, same thing, different languages, okay? Don't forget. Don't forget. Susie's not going to forget. Are you all going to be with Susie? I'm not making fun of you, Susie. I'm proud of you. You're doing well. So he is going to make a new anointed one. He is going to anoint a new king. And this is something that directly uh, uh, puts him in harm's way because he is going to be upending the political order. Now something, we stand in this weird point of history where we've never seen anything like it. We have this government that is completely separate from the religious authority. That is weird. This, this wall of separation between church and state, that has never happened until very recently in human history. Every other culture, starting 300 years ago, back to all the way back, uh, the church and state, whatever their religion is, uh, are connected. So here, Samuel is the head of the church at that point. I mean, church is something usually, uh, church just means assembly. In this case, I just mean religious body, religious authority. The Jews of that time were all centralized around the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, which Samuel oversaw. So Samuel is the head of the church. However, he controls who's in charge of the state. So he anointed Samuel when Samuel became king. Now that God doesn't like I said Samuel. Samuel anointed Saul when Saul became king. God don't like Saul anymore. He's now going to change who is king over Israel. The current king is not going to like that. So Samuel says, how can I do this? And God says, well, go to Bethlehem. That's where the new guy is. And you're going to just do a sacrifice there. That's, that's your thing. Just say you've got to do it there. So he does. He has a sacrifice. He's not lying. But while he's there, he says, I want to see Jesse's family. Now, we've never met Jesse before. He's not someone that was known. Bethlehem is a no-name town, Nobody, no, no account town. Jesse is a no-account person. He's got eight sons. He says, have them all there. At the dinner, he looks at each one. He looks at the eldest, Eliab. Well, man, this, this guy looks great. He's going to be perfect first king. No, God says, I don't see the way that you see. Goes down the line of all the sons. No, 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 none of these will do. Finally says, do you have another son? Yeah, we got the run to the litter. I'm putting it in my own words. He doesn't say the run to the litter. However, the run to the litter it would be the youngest and the one you give the job that nobody wants to do. Tending sheep is boring and not fun. Well, we got the, the, the youngest. He's, he's tending sheep. 
we'll call him here. We're not going to eat till he comes. And then he comes, and God immediately says, this is him. It describes him. I, I did some research this morning. It describes him as a ruddy person. There's only one other uh, person in the Bible in the Old Testament described as ruddy. Does anybody remember who that is? Esau. Sorry, Susie, I stole it from you. But I said the right answer. Good. She gave me a thumbs up. Yeah, you got it, Dad. Esau came out red and ruddy. So the ruddy has to do with a red complexion. And some people think that this just meant, you know, he had been out in the field and he had a, a good, healthy complexion about him. But a lot of biblical scholars are pretty sure it means he's a ginger. He has red hair, which is quite rare in that culture. So that, that he was uh, fair, fairly complected. And he's not a white guy. But he's, he's a darker guy with red hair. He looks very unique. And um, instantly, you know, we're, he's revealed as God's beloved one. And then Samuel designates him. He doesn't officially ordain him as the new king, but he does uh, uh, say this is the new guy. And then he goes to Ramah. And that's the end of the story. So any pastor worth his salt is going to focus on this thing that God says. I have refused Eliab, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh at the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. That, I think, is the kernel of this, that any Christian worth their salt is going to know out of this story. God does not account men and women the way that the world does. God sees things very differently. So just to keep in mind how this all worked, you know, we expect kings out of the families and social circles of kings, right? That's how royalty works. Royalty, they're called blue bloods. The notion is that, that you have these royal families that it's only their children that are supposed to be at the top of state. That's not how God does things. God looks upon the heart and he ordains who is worthy. And to look for him, he doesn't go to a, a rich royal family. He doesn't go in the middle of, of Jewish civilization. He goes to a hick town, to a hick family and he finds the guy at the bottom of the totem pole, or I, I think the bottom ones are actually most important, at the top of the totem pole. It's been a while since I studied totem poles. Anyway, he's the least no-account person, and God says he's going to be king. And David, for his part, was never trained to be a king, and yet he turns out being a man after God's own heart. God equips those whom he calls, and he calls people that the world can't predict. So God has chosen, for at least a moment, to allow Nowata, Oklahoma to claim a lot of attention, you know. TJ and, our work, and I are working to build up the ministry of this church to influence things for the better as we're able. I'm very proud of what we've been able to do, and it's not just us. I mean, as people come and check out this church, I think I decided I'm going to try and get a lot of people here on Easter. Do y'all think that'd be fun? No. I, I want to I have 100 people in here on Easter. Do y'all think we could do it? No. Okay, I'm going to do my part, but would you do your part with that? Fewer yeses. I'm going to do my part. Would you all do your part to, to pack this place on Easter? Okay, we got a few weeks. I don't hardly ever put you all in this position. And truth be told, I don't want a bunch of strangers in here very often. I want spiritual family. But I think it would be really fun on Easter Day to have this place packed and sing in Easter hymns. What do you say? Are you with me? We going to do it? Okay, so... So I, I'm, I'm excited about this. I want you to be excited about it. And then, and then you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to do a big church growth thing. You know, I, I think a lot of people are going to come and say this was nice and then not come again, and that's how God wants it. But I think every now and again it's good for us to just have a big thing, and it feels nice. So tying that to this, 
God ordains to work in places that the world is not work, looking at. And I think that one of the things that we have to keep in mind is God is working in Nowata. God is even working up in Delaware, if you can believe it. There's only 300 people live there. God has a claim on the hearts of people there. And we continually are bombarded by a world that says that, that only these things here matter. Uh, look over here. These are the things that matter. And one of the things our faith needs to do is reorient and go, nope, God decides who matters and we're going to look at the people around us instead of being very concerned about what's going on over here. So tie that to all the sermons I've given against listening to the news and listening to worldly people. Follow God. Look at the people around you. Minister to them. It's what's going on right here that matters, not what you see on TV. Okay, let's, let's move on. Let's go to Psalm 23. You can find it on page 137 of your hymnal. And we've done this several times before, so this sung response should sound pretty familiar. We're doing response one. Sounds like this. My shepherd is the Lord. Nothing indeed shall I want. We'll sing that together twice, and then we'll read, okay? Sing with me. My shepherd is the Lord. Nothing indeed shall I want. One more time. My shepherd is the Lord, nothing indeed shall I want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He restoreth my soul, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. My shepherd is the Lord, nothing indeed shall I want. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. My shepherd is the Lord, nothing indeed shall I want. So this psalm, written by King David, is meant to reorient us in a similar way to how I was just talking about. The world says, this is who matters, this is what's going on, this is what everybody needs to have their eyes on. We say, nope, uh, we're going to have our eyes on who's around us and what God is doing in our midst. Now, likewise, we live in the midst of a world that is constantly dissatisfied, constantly uh, 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 complaining, constantly feeling like God is not doing his part. Let me ask you, is God lacking in any way? Is there anything that God should have done for you that he didn't do? We all know the answer to that should be no, and yet how many of us regularly are, are, have that strange experience of dissatisfaction in life? When we understand who God is and what he has done and how that impacts us, there isn't really any room for dissatisfaction because the thing is, has God given you just as much good as you deserve or has he given you more good than you can ever deserve? You know the answer, 
And yet on a daily basis, how many people claim to follow God and yet feel dissatisfied and yet feel lacking? We live in the midst of a culture that is lacking, full of people who are dissatisfied, and they should be because they have a God-shaped hole that nothing else can fill. And they look to money, and they look to sex, and they look to drugs, and they look to music, and they look to sports, and they look to politics. None of those things fill that hole. Of course they're dissatisfied. But we, we have the Lord who died for us, who has given us his Holy Spirit, who fills us with his Holy Spirit, and whom we have intimacy with as we come before him in prayer, as we attend upon his word. He has given us more than we could ever ask for. And yet we're dissatisfied? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why? Because he takes perfect care of me. He leads me to green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. My cup runs over. If I'm ever dissatisfied, it's because I am looking at myself too much and I'm not looking at God enough. May we repent of being dissatisfied in Christ. All right, that's my sermon on that. Um, We're going to weave that together now with our reading from Ephesians, so I'd welcome our Ephesians reader to come forward. Our New Testament reading is from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 5, verses 8 through 14, which you can find on page 1651 in your pew Bibles. Listen again for the word of God. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he said, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. The word of the Lord. Does that sound pretty normal so far as the scriptures we usually listen to? It sounds pretty weird. Is that? I think most people, they hear stuff like this and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Light, darkness, works of, righteous, uh, works of righteousness, fruits, of, you know. It, it uses words that we're hearing a lot in worship usually, right? So it's easy to just kind of zone out and, okay, yeah, yeah, this fits what, uh, what we've heard. And, of course, this is not the only place in the Bible where we've, heard this language that once upon a time you and I were living in darkness. And keep that in mind for the final reading today, which is the man who was living in darkness. He, he was blind all his life, and then Christ made him able to see. But the thing is, Christ doesn't leave us in darkness. He might literally leave us blind. However, when, Christ, when we encounter Christ, he doesn't leave us dead in our sins. He extends the offer of new life to us. Okay, he's, he's, he, he heals us of our infirmities. He, he removes from us our damage. You know, this is why we follow him, because he alone has the power to do these things. For you, ye, were sometimes in darkness. Once upon a time, uh, you lived in darkness, but now you are full of light in the Lord. Should this be true of all Christians? Yeah. 
It should be true of all people. Christ died for the world, for all people. This should be true for all people, and yet it's only true for Christians. Christians are the ones who have given up on ourselves. We've repented of our sins. We walk in the light of Christ now. So walk as children of light, it says. How do you know if you're a child of light? A couple of weeks ago, we were reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Remember, it says in, uh, well, no, it's chapter, well, no, no, no. Uh, in chapter 1, it says, um, the light came, but people loved darkness rather than light. Remember? And then in, in John three sixteen it says, uh, uh, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. For Christ came into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. But to those who have not received his name, they are condemned already because they have not believed in the only son of the living Lord. Why not? Because they love darkness rather than light, it says. Why would they love darkness rather than light? Because their works were evil. And when you bring them into the light, you see their evil works. And they don't want to be exposed. They want to live in darkness. But it says, you Christians, you live in the light so that your good works may be seen and bring glory to God. I just transitioned into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount there. But all these things fit together. The Bible is, speaks with one voice. Christians are not people of darkness. We're people of light. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Let me ask you a question. How do you know what good is? When, when we're trying to seek out what is good, how on earth do you know what is right and wrong, what is good and bad? How do you know what good is? Johnny lifted up his Bible and said, the Bible. And that's the right answer because the connecting tissue is, who is it that establishes what is good? God. How do you know what is good? Well, God has told us what is good. How do we know what God has said? Read your Bible. That's how it's all connected. So what the, the wrong answer to that that a lot of worldly people would give is listen to your conscience. Why is that the wrong answer? Why, when we're discerning what is good, how do you know what is good? Why is it the wrong answer to say listen to your conscience? Sometimes your conscience is wrong. That's what Susanna said. Is she right? Yeah, your conscience is not God's conscience. Your conscience is your conscience. Are you God? There's a difference between you and God, a big one. He is good. You are not. Whenever people came to Jesus and called him good teacher, he instantly said, there is only one good one, and it's God. So Jesus, of course, is God, but they didn't know that at the time. And he's making clear, you know, we, we, we go through the world and we're going, okay, here's the good guys, here's the bad guys. One of the things the Christian lens does is says, they're all the bad guys. Here's the bad guy. The only one that's not the bad guy is God. What does God say? And then that's how I should live. So that's, Christians don't fit in with the world. The world wants us to go, here's the good guys, here's the bad guys, okay? Uh, the, the Democrats are the bad guys. The Republicans are the good guys. The Afghanistani people are the bad guys. The Americans are the good guys. You, you, that's what the worldly message is. And Christians go, nope, we're all the bad guys. We were all born in darkness, dead in our sins, hating God. He reached out to us first. He died for us while we were yet sinners. He loved us when we hated him, and we are the ones 
that have repented of it, and we pray that all people would repent. Amen? Amen. We know what goodness and righteousness and truth are because God has said what those things are, and we believe him. Prove what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't have anything to do with unfruitful works of darkness. That's a fancy way of saying stop sinning. Have I said that to you guys before? It's because the Bible says it all the time. Stop sinning. It's killing you. Have you ever known anybody who has like COPD and they're still smoking? And you're going, stop smoking. You're killing yourself. And that's what Jesus is doing with sin. Stop sinning. Stop it. You're killing yourself. I love you. Especially when you have someone in your family. Sorry for yelling in the microphone. When you have someone in your family who's sm- they're killing. I have an uncle who, who he had COPD and he would not stop smoking. And it just killed us to watch him just slowly kill himself. It just hurts. And that's what people are doing with sin. All right. Uh, it's a shame to sp- even speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. Here's a thought. We live in an era where we've been told that if you're going to be a creature of the light, then you have to pretend you don't even see the darkness, right? See no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil, right? That's not what the Bible says to do. It says reprove the darkness, expose the darkness, because that's what the light does. Are you a creature of the light? Then you expose the darkness. And this is one of the things that, that I'm, I'm lifting up right now online. It's going very well. I hope it continues to go well. Secrecy is all around us. Confidentiality is all around us, and that is bad because then you don't know what the truth is and what's not. You just have a bunch of people saying, I'm not going to tell you what happened, but trust me. And I'm going, you're not worthy of trust. I'm not worthy of trust. I've tried all my life to be a man worthy of trust. Don't trust me because I'm not God. God alone is good. Don't trust. If, if you're ever needing information from me and I'm going, just trust me. I can't give it to you, but just you should worry. Now, that's not to say, you know, this is a hard thing. There are a lot of people who, um, well, uh, I, I don't want you to freak out when I say this. There are a lot of people who look at their pastor and uh, you think that you can tell your pastor anything and he is never, ever, ever going to act on that information. And that's not the kind of pastor that I am. There are certain things that if you tell me and it impacts other people, I'm going to act on that information. And everybody knows that there's degrees of this already. You know, like everybody knows that if a child is getting molested, pastors are mandatory reporters. It doesn't matter that they're sworn to secrecy or we have to do that. But there are other things. There are other things in the community. There are other things. You know, if you tell me that you're cheating on your wife, do not expect me to keep that secret for you. If you tell me that you're abusing your kid, it is not. There, there are things in your life that you want to keep in darkness And if you bring them to me, I am not going to be complicit in your lies and secrets. And thank you for not putting me in that position. You know, not many people come to me in my office and confess everything and then say, but you can't tell anybody. Don't do that to me. I'm not going to do it with you. I'm not going to keep your secrets. It's not the job of Christians to keep each other's secrets. On the last day, everything you have ever said and done is going to be exposed for everybody to see. You're worried about people judging you now. Everybody in all eternity is going to judge you on that day, and there is nothing you can do to hide what you're saying or doing. The most loving thing that we can do right now is bring everything that's in the dark into the light. And that's our own sins, and that's the sins of the world. I think Christians should be at the head of media networks, shining a light on all the dark places. 
I believe that that is the work of God shining a light in the dark places, showing truth where, where worldly powers want to hide in darkness. And I think in our own lives, we need to intentionally shine a light in every crack and crevice so that we're making sure that we are not keeping anything from God. I thought I was doing a good job at this as a man of God. I was a preacher. I've been a preacher for almost 12 years, I think. And uh, then I got married, and I got a judgmental wife, and she was looking at me and watching the things that I did. And I realized, oh, man, there's a bunch of things I say and do that are not Christian. And then, you know, she's continued doing that. And then I got a daughter who's now six years old. And last week I told you, she looked at me on the Sabbath and she said, you shouldn't be doing that. And I made my excuse and she said, that's what Satan wants you to think. I went, good God. But that's the most, she's shining a light on the dark places, right? And that sanctifies me because I'm self-interested and I don't do it. And you and everybody else who follows Jesus needs that. That's the purpose of the church. If you didn't notice it, on our logo, it says, watching over one another in love. Around, that's a Methodist phrase. That's what Methodists did. We are not a group of people that are supposed to be complicit in the lies that we're all already perfect. The purpose of a church is to shine a light in the dark places, expose sin, and call people to repentance. Because without that, you are still dead in your sins. I feel like I won that argument. I don't, I don't preach that message very often. I think that's actually very key to the proclamation of the gospel. I think we, when we're thinking about, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a child of the light, that has real-world implications, and that means that you don't keep secrets. There's an episode of The Office. I don't know if anybody watches that, but there's a character that says, secret secrets are no fun. Secret secrets hurt someone. I'd never heard that before that, and it's actually a stripper who quotes it. But the thing is, secrets are bad. The darkness is bad, and we should have nothing to do with them. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to go about and blab everybody's business, but that does mean that we need to be responsible with the information that we have and that uh, we should never be lying. We come up with all these excuses why it's okay for me to keep this lie, it's not good. Our final reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, which you can find on page 1502 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So we're going to have this light, dark imagery again that we've been tapping into. When Jesus had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, 
This is he. Others said, he is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, how were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, a man that is called Jesus made clay. What does Jesus mean, by the way? Savior, there it is, or salvation. A man named Salvation cured me. That's what he said. A man named Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? And he said, I know not. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So it matters that it's a Sabbath. Do you, here, let's just take a time out for a second. Have we been told the name of the, bland, the guy that was blind yet? Spoiler alert, we're never told his name. Do you think this guy's identity matters? I mean, in some sense, yeah, because the story, the whole story is about him. But a lot of people, just keep in mind, there are a lot of people who look and they'll say, you know, the woman who was weeping and washed Jesus' feet with ointment and dried it with her hair, she's never even named. They didn't even care about women in those days. That's not the message. The message is sometimes the name doesn't matter. And then other times they tell you, the guy who helped Jesus carry his, his cross was Simon the Cyrene. And that's all we know about him. He just carried his cross for a minute. There's just one sentence about him, and that's it. They name some people, and other people aren't named. It doesn't have any sexist implications. It's just, you know, the Bible's just weird, you know? Verse 15. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said unto them, He put clay upon, my, clay upon mine eyes, and I washed, and do see. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Now remember, a prophet, there were lots of prophets before this. A prophet is one who communes with God. They hear God's message and they give it to people and they have some of God's power as well. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? And his parents answered them and said, We know that he is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was a Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue, confess that Jesus was the Christ. And remember, what does Christ mean? There it is, anointed one. Y'all are getting it. All right. The anointed one. So specifically, they're looking forward to the anointed one who would bring God's kingdom to earth. That's the specific Christ. So anyone who says Jesus is the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And the parents are refusing to say what they know to be true because they don't want to offend man. And just so I don't give this sermon again, should we rightfully fear man more than God or God more than man? We all know God more than man. These are the decision points where it comes. And, you know, forever and eternity... These parents are going to be told this story of being wimps who were more afraid of man than God. Okay, shame on them. Everybody say, shame. shame. That was fun. We won't do that very often. Uh, all right, uh, verse 23, therefore said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Verse 24, then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, 
Give God the praise. We know that this man, they're talking about Jesus, is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already. And ye did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We're going to camp out for just a second. You know how at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes fun of them. Some people saying, well, I follow Jesus. Well, I follow Peter. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. And he says, I thank God I didn't baptize hardly any of you because you're missing the point. And that's something that's going on today. There are a lot of uh, well Christians who say, I follow Jesus and not Paul. And that's what they say to disregard some things that are in Paul's letters that aren't in the Gospels. And you've got to beware of people who turn God's word against itself. It all speaks with one voice, and he's saying, uh, we got this story here, well, you're following Jesus, but we follow Moses. And the whole point of the Bible is they're both part of God's saving work. That's why they're both in the Bible. You can't turn one against the other. Verse 29, we know that God spake unto Moses, as for this fellow, Jesus we know not whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him God heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? He's saying this has never happened. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Now, did Jesus say that he was born blind because of his sin? Or that because of his parents? He said, no, no, no. He was born blind so that God would be glorified. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Isn't it interesting? Up till now, they've been talking about the Christ, the anointed one. He says, Dost thou believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. He's talking about himself in the third person. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see might not see, Oh, no, sorry, sorry, I wrote that wrong. That they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. This is the word of the Lord. So the thing I want us moving toward today, we've heard four readings I want us to be moving towards humility. And the thing is, in order to be humble, we have to renounce the world. The world before Christ and the world after Christ thinks that it has the answers and thinks that it can build a better world without Jesus, thinks it can build his kingdom on earth. And Christians need to have the clarity to say, nope, humans are born in sin on our own. We're evil. You cannot trust men. We can only trust God. God alone heals. God alone restores. God alone guides I'm about to start reading this book called Dominion. And this, this book is written by a person who is not a follower of Jesus, 
but he does a historical survey of Christendom from the days of Jesus up till today, and he marks that all the good advances of Western civilization come directly from the Christian faith, and that without the Christian faith, these things would not have happened. There are things particular to the marrying of Greek philosophy, Hebrew messianic expectation, and the personal work of Christ Jesus that made Western civilization and when you remove God from the equation, all of those things disappear. And that's what this guy says is happening right now. That's why I was asking you, how do you know what goodness is? Without God, what is goodness? Who determines what is good? Because instantly it starts to break down and we disagree and we divide. And all kinds of awful things have been done in the name of the greater good, have they not? We stand at this place in history where we are the ones who are going to have to insist against the world that there is no way outside of Christ Jesus. That no one can be saved and this world will not be saved outside of a relationship with Christ Jesus where we submit and obey. The world does not want to hear that. The world is offended by that. The world hates that message and they will hate us for lifting up that message. And we're going to be in that position of the blind guy's parents where they call us to account and say, you tell us about this Jesus guy. And we're going, uh, there's other people that can talk about that. Uh, I don't know. You know, I go to church. I don't know why. You know, talk to, talk to the preacher. You know, every single one of us is going to be expected to give an account. We're told, be ready at all times to give an account that it, for the hope that is in you. And when it says that, it's each and every one of you. And it doesn't have to sound like fancy theology all it has to sound like is this man right here. I was blind. He gave me my sight back. I lived in darkness. He brought me into the light. I was dead in my sins. He gave me new life. That's all that's expected of you. And I'm going to put you in a position today. I'm, will you offer your testimony when they come to hear it? Are you going to be a wimp? Are you going to back down for fear of men? Look at these brave people. I'm so proud of you. When the day comes, be ready. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn. Number 340, Come ye sinners, poor and needy.